0: to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com Hello, it's Richard McKinnon here and uh, thanks for listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace A quick note uh, before we get into the meat of this episode um, This is nominally episode 60 but it comes after a couple of special episodes we did all about the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the workplace so episode 60 features a discussion about psychological flexibility and an interview with annie Gascoin all about organizational flexibility um, we're returning to the standard numbering of the episodes after this but i thought it would be useful to point out that all of this was recorded well in advance of the current pandemic thanks for listening Hello and welcome to episode 60 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Richard McKinnon, and as always, I'm joined by my co host, Pilar Ortiz. Pilar, how are you?
1: I am very well and a little bit like, oh, we're coming to the end of this little series.
0: I know, and it's episode 60. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> I've got to stop expressing shock as the numbers go up but um, it's nice it's a nice round number um and yeah we're in episode eight of the series all about psychological flexibility so uh, it's been an interesting couple of months.
1: Yes and I've really enjoyed it I hope listeners have also been following through and uh, I've, I quite enjoyed just getting into depth like going into depth into a topic.
0: Yeah, I think that's what I wanted to do when, when we uh, agreed we'd do a little series on this. I was conscious we touched on it many, many times in passing, but I thought let's, let's do it justice. Let's signpost how you can get into it in more depth and maybe look at each of these, these processes because it divides up quite neatly. Which is, which is quite nice. Now, if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, or if you've missed a few episodes, just to let you know that this particular series, all about psychological flexibility, started with episode number 53. So you don't have too far to go back if you want to catch up. But also, if you go to worklifepsych.com slash podcast, you can find all the show notes there and a description of each one. So if, if, one in particular doesn't sound too interesting. You can you can dive into another one. They are a series, but um, uh, go where you'd like to go uh, first. So this episode, we're going to do a bit of a recap, um, answers some frequently asked questions, and we have a special guest. Um, this episode includes an interview with Dr. Annie Gascoigne from Goldsmiths, University of London, who's going to give us another perspective on a slightly different but very related topic, which is that of organizational flexibility. So we've been talking about individual psychological flexibility. This is the perspective of how organizations themselves can get these same benefits by being organizationally flexible. And Annie had a lot of interesting things to say about that. But we'll, we'll get to that um, uh, a little bit later on in the episode. Let's start, shall we, with a, a bit of a recap on this topic of psychological flexibility and how we got to where we are today. Psychological flexibility, it is in essence uh, an evidence-based framework for improving our performance and perfu- um, improving our well-being. And that's kind of um very generic definition of that. And that's because it's being used in so many different contexts. In this series, we've been talking about psychological flexibility, this skill set as being really relevant to the workplace. And this is a workplace themed podcast, but of course it's being used in lots of different contexts like uh, psychotherapy, like social work, like education. Um, and, and these principles. When we translate them into skills, they can get us some really great benefits, um, as we'll see at the end of this episode for entire organizations, but also just for you and me, um, some some life skills to help us uh, navigate the challenges that come to us uh, on a regular basis. And that's kind of the focus that I have when I practice these things with my clients. It's not overcoming huge setbacks and disasters and life disappointments, but more the day-to-day hassles, the day-to-day challenges that we tend to experience, um, particularly in the workplace. And Pilar, as we've discussed over the the time we've been doing this podcast, those challenges are many and varied in the workplace.
1: Yeah. And these, I think this set of skills and just thinking about everything we've been talking about, really, it it does help in the day-to-day, I have to say.
0: Because, you know, I agree, <laughs> but it's not just my <laughs> view or your view. The evidence really supports this and it supports it in a way that's very, very powerful. So, um, if, if uh, listeners are interested, you know, previous guests on the podcast, on this particular series, um, have, have done some, some great uh, research into this area. And one in particular uh, is Dr. Rachel Skews, whose PhD in particular focused on the benefits. Of a psychological flexibility infused coaching uh, intervention, and she did a randomised control trial in the workplace. That you know, which is what we all want to be able to refer to. They're tricky to do, um, and it's just one uh, piece of the puzzle from the last twenty-five years, showing that this entire area can really support human functioning in a very fundamental way. So, you know, while I find it very interesting. Intellectually I also feel quite privileged to to be able to use these skills and also to help other people in the workplace um, just be their best selves and deal with the kind of stuff that uh, comes between us and satisfaction and meaning and, and all of those big things. So while I mentioned Rachel, I wanna thank her. I wanna thank everyone who's participated in this short series and has been generous with their time and, and their expertise. Um, and I'm linking back to each of them as an individual in the show notes so you can find out more about them. And of course, get in touch with them if you want. So shall we have a a bit of a review of what we've discussed uh, along this series? Uh, And Pilar, I'd love to hear your questions if you if you have them or your examples. Because they, they really help illuminate this stuff as we go along. Yeah, and
1: I would even uh, uh, I would even ask listeners to think back themselves even before we well even before you start to summarize. Just to it'll be interesting to see what's the first thing that comes to mind from the last uh, from the last few episodes if they've been listening to the series. What's the one thing that really stuck with them? And and I'd love to hear that also.
0: Mm, by all means, get in touch um, on Twitter. Uh, We're at MyPocketPsych, or send us a longer message via the contact forum online. That's located at WorkLifePsych.com forward slash contact. So we started this series by looking at the benefits of understanding your values and also putting them into action. And your values are mm, a summary of who you want to be, your best self, the kind of standards you want to live up to. So this whole topic of values and putting them into action is about clarifying the direction of travel for your life, but also taking the steps towards that as well. So putting the values into action, taking committed action towards your goals is a really core part of developing psychological flexibility. Otherwise, it's all in our minds and it's not really happening. And values in particular need translating. Uh, and and need to be discussed contextually. And what I mean by that is, my values aren't yours, Pilar. There might be an overlap mm. when we discuss them, but my values might not necessarily be the values of my clients or their organisations. But you know what? It's really beneficial to talk about them with intent, to talk about them um, clearly, rather than assuming we have shared values or assuming that we understand the other person's perspective. So it's quite deep. But when you do uh, exercises to help with values clarification, you can get to see those real light bulb moments when people realize hmm, I've drifted a bit from the kind of person I wanted to be or actually really frequently. Uh, this explains why I'm so enjoying this kind of activity because I get to put this particular value into practice. I'm, I'm living it on a regular basis. That's often, as I said earlier in the series, a starting point uh, when we're developing psychological flexibility. Start with the values. What's important to you? What's meaningful to you? And that can really set the scene for the work that might that might follow that. We've also talked about why it's useful to adopt a mindful, focused approach to our work, to our life. One of the key skills here is to develop what's called present moment awareness, to be here. In the moment now rather than engaging in the time traveling that our mind can take us on and you know before i sat down to record this i was reading and i was reading about this topic and just reading the words on the page did what the words on the page told me would happen and activated all kinds of memories <laughs> and all kinds of places i went to in my mind it was a great little literal thought experiment. But it, it, it's worth developing this awareness of where your mind is so that you can bring it back to where it's most useful and bring it to bear on a person to give them your attention or to bring it to bear on a, on a complex task. Uh, whatever your, your motivation for doing it, it, it will help you engage more fully in the moment and be less uh, caught up in other places, mentally.
1: I have to say that I've noticed that a lot since we've been, well, since I've been doing this podcast with you, Richard, and especially when I, I go for a walk and I'm listening to a podcast and then my mind starts to wander. And of course, then I notice that my mind starts to wander and I think, oh, I must tell Richard and listeners about this. And then, of course, <laughs> I just go on another wandering off. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting.
0: It can have an impact in very small ways. You know, I'll be very honest with everyone who's listening. In the early days of this podcast, I I I kind of surrounded myself with lots of notes and lots of stuff and lots of stuff on screen in front of me. I normally sit in front of a big screened iMac and I could hear myself in the old episodes getting very distracted. I could hear it in my own voice because I was trying to speak and think and read ahead and also sometimes forget to turn off notifications and things were appearing on my screen. So maybe you didn't notice it, but I could hear it in myself that I wasn't 100%, uh, 100% focused on the task at hand. So it doesn't have to be completely changing who you are at all or anything like that, but maybe practicing the noticing of where your focus is going you can then bring it back. Um, And it doesn't have to be a a huge impact. But uh, we do, I think, out of a habit, spread our attention very thinly across lots of activities. But that's a habit. And so you can change it if you'd like to. We also talked quite a bit, Vilar, you and I, about the role of our thoughts. And this importance of being able to see thoughts for what they actually are, rather than what they say they are. You know, they can be very loud, they can be quite demanding, they can sound like the literal truth, and being able to defuse from them, to be able to step back and let them have a bit of space, but not let them be in the driving seat of our responses to the world around us, of 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 our behavior, so to speak. And And I think you had some interesting thoughts <laughs> of your own reflections on thinking about your thinking over the time that we've been working together on this podcast
1: yeah my awareness especially has really really increased uh, and my ability to step back like you say and go okay oh this is happening do I want it to be happening no yes and then making that choice mm.
0: choice it's it's really important part of this yeah we we often I think have more choice in situations than we feel we do in the moment, and the feeling bit is often acting out what's going on inside rather than who we would like to be in that moment and that could be I used this example in a workshop a couple of weeks ago that could be the difference between you know turning off uh, a social media app and going back to work or feeling frustration and continuing to stay on that to alleviate your frustration in in neither of those. Uh, in, in you know, dealing with your frustration that way. You're not helping yourself with the work that you, you need to deal with. And you're actually not doing much for the frustration either. And you're building up this other slightly unhelpful habit. So, it again, it can be about the micro things in our life, the very small behaviors as well. And on that note, <laughs> we also spent a whole episode talking about discomfort, psychological discomfort uh, that really comes along for the journey whenever we're doing anything meaningful. Um, when we're doing anything that involves change or growth or um, pursuing our, our goals, there's always going to be some work there. And And sometimes our radar pings when we sense that it could be uncomfortable and so we go in a different direction. So a core element of this is being able to see the discomfort for what it is and make again, a decision, am I willing to go through whatever that discomfort is because I'm pursuing my really valued goals? Yeah. You yes, I was because that, yeah. um, I
1: had something happen to me just very recently around that. Um I think maybe this is an example it's definitely. So I'm starting to I want to create some animations for some work I'm doing and I was looking for someone to do it and I had a couple so I had one person who was recommended to me and I could see that it was going to be very easy to work with that person but I wasn't sure they're going to be deliver the best thing. And then I had this other person who probably would deliver a better thing, but the way to get there was going to make me a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, We have very different communication styles. You know, they didn't come as well recommended. And I really had to think through, okay, why? Why do I want to go this way, not that way? And it was all about being comfortable. So we'll see what happens, but it's really interesting to understand why am I making this decision? And if it's only because that's, what makes me comfortable? Then I need to question that. If it's because this is there's a gut, my gut is really telling me no, no, this is the great one, and that's different. But uh, so that that was my little story for that.
0: That's a great example because you know that now about yourself, and now you can make a decision. Yeah. And you could say, I oh, don't you know what I'm going to go with what's easiest here yeah. because mm-hmm. reasons one to one hundred, or you say actually this project is super important to me, and I think it's worthwhile going out on a limb a little bit and going into the unknown a little bit. Uh, You know, both of those are better than going with your automatic pilot and just reacting to the potential for discomfort. That's a great example because it creeps up in our decision-making around the new and the unknown all the time. A very philosophical discussion, I'd say a very conceptual discussion about our self concepts. And when it comes to developing your psychological flexibility, w- one big part of that is to be able to view yourself flexibly. Not you in terms of job titles or oversimplified self concept, but you in context. So, as the distinction I was trying to make the last time is the difference between self as context or self as content, the stuff inside of you. Uh, the very basic example was, if I have a bad, inadverted, commas, thought, it doesn't make me a bad person. That's just part of the stuff that's going on inside of me. And to be able to distinguish between those things. And of course, all of these, these skills we've been talking about, they all support each other. And um, I know you shared some some great examples previously about... Well, if you're able to be mindful and notice what's going on inside, then then that might make it easier to spot the thoughts that are unhelpful and unwelcome and maybe sidestep them and, you know, take the meaningful action. Or if you're very clear on your values, that can help you make decisions that are based on values and not on avoiding discomfort, for example. So we, we pick these things out as being separate to each other, but of course, they're all related is it enough to focus on one of them? You you could get a benefit from that for sure. You 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 would probably feel good for having reclarified your values. You could feel better to start putting them into action. But obviously, the icing on the cake is being able to practice all of them and develop that that psychological flexibility that comes from putting these processes into practice. Now, if you want to learn a little bit more about this topic we have a page on the website dedicated to it worklifepsych.com slash psychological flexibility um might have picked a shorter url but anyway <laughs> it is what it is now it, it is it is what it says on the tin um and what we've done is we've gathered the episodes on this series from the podcast alongside some blog posts that explore these topics alongside a description of, of what it is and how you might develop it. And that's also the page where we detail how you can develop those skills through our various training courses. So if you're interested in learning how to do this for yourself or introducing it to your team, that page, worklifepsych.com psychological flexibility is a great starting point to understand the what and how of that. So I thought what we might do before we hand over to, well, me, but also Annie, is talk a little bit about, you know, I've done a lot of coaching using these these methods. I've done a lot of training and development work uh, around psychological flexibility and, and similar questions come up on a regular basis. So I thought we might walk through some of these frequently asked questions and hopefully address questions listeners might have had as they're... Listening to this, and maybe prompt some additional ones so they can get in touch with us. How, how does that sound, Pilar? That
1: sounds great, and it's a it's a it's a great list. Um, and, and 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 there's some <laughs> questions that I will even ask myself at some point. I have to say. <laughs>
0: and it's a shorter list than exists in real yes. life. I had to really cut it down, but hopefully this will prompt some some thought. So why don't you become one of my course delegates? And ask me some questions.
1: I will, I will. So, Dr. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> so, I suppose that, Adam, this makes complete sense. Is, is this something I have to be doing all the time? And more specifically, do I have to be mindful and present all the time for me to be able to be psychologically flexible?
0: I would say um, the way I normally answer this question is to say it's really unrealistic, I think, to expect people to be in the moment all the time and giving you know 100% focus to everything that they do here i think we can answer this question by by saying what's important to you and if you know what's important to you you can then decide to bring your mindful focus to those tasks and when it's something that's not as important to you uh perhaps you're sitting quietly between some meetings what's wrong with letting your mind wander and having a good old daydream. Um, Because if you know where your focus is, you you can then bring it back when you really want to do that. I don't think it's realistic for any of us to be 100% mindful and really focused all of the time. It's about knowing when you'd like to, sort of turn the dial on that and really bring it to bear on something in the here and now.
1: And I suppose something that we've touched on a lot would be that it's a skill that we want. We want to learn how to be fully present and mindful when we want to. I imagine that's also got something mm. to do in there. No?
0: Absolutely. So practicing, yeah. it makes it easier. Yeah. And, I you know, I've, I've lots of uh, people I've worked with in a coaching context and they're developing these skills and, you know, maybe something landed incorrectly, or maybe my messaging wasn't clear. But every so often, someone will say, I feel really bad. I wasn't able to be mindful on the train on the way home from work. I say, well, how are you feeling? I was exhausted. Well, what were you trying to do? Oh, nothing, but be mindful. Yep. But <laughs> so wouldn't that be a good time to just rest, you know, um, instead of trying to be productive 24 um, seven? If you had nothing to bring your attention to bear on, what were you trying to do? Mm-hmm. So be selective. Mm-hmm.
1: So, in the last, well, in, in, in quite a few episodes also. So, this is the uh, second question, Dr. Richard: is um, uh, there's moves and things we do to get away from things and things that we do to move towards them. So, are all the moves that we're making away from things, are they all bad?
0: No. And this distinction between away moves and towards moves, we talk about this when we talk about the act matrix and and i've said this before it's it makes for very poor podcast content because it's a very visual uh medium but it's a really nice way of exploring um what you what your behavior could look like and away moves are generally things that we do to um avoid or reduce discomfort and of course in context avoiding working with a difficult person Mightn't be helpful in the long run because it might be an opportunity for you to develop and grow as a professional. Um, an away move, uh, taking your hand off a, a hot stove where you've put it accidentally, that's, that's protecting you. That's keeping you alive. Um, so we need to be contextually sensitive when we talk about away moves and towards moves. And as long as we're making them consciously and we note the patterns in our behavior, we could say, I choose to engage in this away move right now because you know what? I've got nothing left in me. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely exhausted and now is the time I'm going to go to the fridge nor the freezer and get some ice cream because I'm thoroughly fed up and I know that this isn't the most sustainable thing I can do but contextually, this has been a terrible week for me. And then someone else might say, you know what? I, I know myself. I know the week I've had. I know that if I open the fridge now, that's me for the evening. So I'm going to put my values into action and go for a walk. So flexibility is everything in this. And just because it might relieve some discomfort or avoid discomfort, we also need to remember the bigger picture about what's going on for us. So I would hate to pass on unintentionally some kind of demandingness onto people, some kind of uh, sense that they can never avoid discomfort. It's the choosing um, at those choice points that really matters.
1: And kind of along those lines, and I'm not even going to paraphrase this question written here because I think it's so well phrased. So the next question would be, so if I accept discomfort, do I have to put up with everything I don't like?
0: Mm. This is a really common question because it, I think it conflates acceptance of discomfort with acceptance of the status quo passive acceptance and actually the way acceptance of discomfort in psychological flexibility terms is intentioned is it's to allow you to take action rather than have the discomfort or the fear of discomfort to be a barrier to action so you don't have to put up with anything but um definitely don't want to leave people with the impression that being mindful and accepting is to somehow retreat into yourself and not take helpful action. You're accepting that by taking action, there will be some discomfort along the way. However, I also say that there's many things that we feel we shouldn't have to put up with that it could be useful for us to just put up with them for a while because our minds are blowing them out of proportion and it can be helpful for us to note and sit with the discomfort and realize, "Mm, I can stand this. It's not as bad as I thought it was. So again, context is everything, but I'm in no way saying you just need to passively accept everything that comes your way.
1: So a little bit building on that then, does that mean, wouldn't it be then easier just to think positively about everything? So just think um yeah to just think more positively about everything and then we don't have to go through all this discomfort with matching our values etc
0: yeah absolutely so just think positive um and that and this is the last episode of the podcast we've we've solved it all <laughs> i mean i think i think um you know joking aside the, the misunderstanding many of us have about our own minds is that somehow we can control the thinking process. And if we don't like something in there, we need to remove it or change it somehow. And all we're doing is, is building up relations between the thoughts in a kind of a web and a kind of a network and potentially strengthening some of those. So actually thinking positively, fine, think positively. Are you going to do positive things? Are you going to help positive action? Because just thinking positively, just trying to change those thoughts uh, is not going to stick for very long. And so actually, um, you can think in some context and having positive thoughts about a situation is the last thing that's going to be helpful for you. Maybe you need to realize that the situation is untenable and then do something about it. So just thinking positive thoughts doesn't replace the development of psychological flexibility. And in fact, you know, to know we have positive thoughts means that we have to acknowledge that there's ones that are less positive in there as well. Otherwise, they would just be thoughts. So part of the skill set here, being able to step aside from your thoughts, you have positive ones, yay, you have ones that you don't like, okay, but then there's another thought and another thought. Trying to step into that and make sure that you only have positive ones means that you just get totally tied up with manipulating your thoughts and less likely to take helpful, positive action out in the outside, the physical world, not the world of your mind.
1: Mm, Ironic. Um, Good. So my last but one question. Does this mean that I have to meditate if I hate it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's a challenge in the terminology that's used um around these processes and and i said before and i know rachel discussed it as well when she was on previously the flexibility of psychological flexibility is a great thing as a practitioner because you can rephrase you can be creative if you retain the essence you can be super creative with how you both explain this and how you work with these processes and That's my long way of getting to the point that for some people, meditation is the very last thing they want to engage in. They cannot see any benefit to meditating. And maybe they've had a very bad experience that they associate with meditation from their past. So there's no need to meditate, to formally engage in meditation. It's just that so many of the meditative practices can help us uh, generate the capacity to focus on the here and now. And so a lot of the time, especially in demanding business contexts, meditation or mindfulness are the last words I'll use. We'll talk about developing focus. And it's the exact same thing and they'll do the same exercises, but people will buy into that because it sits well with their approach. And I would rather win win someone over to the, the uh, possibility of being more mindful by calling it focus than being purist and saying, no, no, it must be a meditative, mindful, uh, present awareness um, for you to get any benefit from it.
1: Very interesting. So finally, and wow, this is a huge question, because of course, it brings us back to context. So if the whole point of being uh, psychologically flexible is to do our best at work, which I think, I think is, 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 it might not be the whole point, but for me, it is very important. It's
0: a big part of what we've been talking about, for sure. Just in case, just sure. in case.
1: Um, I'll double check. So if that is the point, then what if I disagree with my organization's values, when actually we've seen that values play such an important part? So what if I disagree with my organization's values?
0: Mm. And again, when working with individuals in the workplace to clarify and bring to life their values, this is a super... Uh, common question because the word values for most of us in employment we associate with our organization's values and I have to say there's a lot of cynicism attached to discussion of values because a lot of organizations don't really live those values they promote them they advertise them but it's not the behavior that people see day to day. So the cynicism means that people sometimes don't want to talk about values at all. And so we'll we'll find a, a, another way to describe these qualities. But they can also note, once they're clear on what matters to them, that there is a disconnect between what they value and what their organization values. And you can navigate that in different ways. I mean, it depends on how big the gulf is between an individual and their organization. And if it's a huge gulf, I'm not the person pointing that out to them. They've known this, but now maybe they have the words to describe that. Um, Again, there's no perfect answer to that massive gulf, except, you know, how important is it that you remain here? Um, What are you getting from this role? And actually, is there a way that you can connect with the organization's values, you know, and your own values? Um, Or for most people, it's just a case of the organization's values are bland and positive, about positively phrased. And so they can make some connections, you know, sometimes literally on paper, draw some lines between their values and the organizational values, because the values are expressed in order to shape community in an organization. This is what we're all behind. This is what we stand for. The implication is this is how we'd like you to be. And um, for most people, The experience of the values is, you know, be a good corporate citizen, work hard, be nice to each other kind of values. There might be very special words chosen by very well-qualified consultants, but that's basically what they're pointing to. So where there is a disconnect, it doesn't imply you need to leave. It doesn't uh, really mean there's going to be conflict. In fact, some of the challenges that we face as individuals is, is interfacing with people or organizations where values aren't shared. And that's something to navigate, not run away from. I don't know if that answers that final question, but um, that, that's a tough one to, to, to pick apart. And actually, sometimes it's the entire topic of coaching for an individual um, I'm very successful. I'm very senior. Uh, I like my job, but I really don't like the organization. And now that you've mentioned values, now I know yeah. why. It's a tricky yeah. one.
1: Nice. Well, those, that that's the list, uh, Richard. That's the list. Did we miss anything out?
0: No, but I, I would love to hear from listeners. So Did you get in touch with your questions or your challenges or your what about? Queries because they're great ways of bringing this uh, into the practical realm and to, to really ground it in in your context maybe so do get in touch we love to love to hear from the listeners I think at this point um, we should probably move on uh, to the interview with Dr Annie Gascoigne so Annie uh, her PhD was in this topic uh, examining organisational flexibility specifically designing a way to measure it and as practitioner scientists accurate valid measurements really important otherwise you're just getting a sense for something so um her whole um research was all about this um i'll be linking to annie's online profile in the show notes and i know she'd be really happy to take questions from anyone uh, about her research or about how this could fit within, within their organization. And uh, again, a big thank you to Annie for taking the time out to, um, to take my, my call. There is, I will warn you listeners, a little bit of siren action in the background, (laughs) but when we're both recording in central London, that that's pretty hard to avoid. So it's only for a couple of moments. So do keep listening. (laughs) So, uh, Pilar, thank you for your time today. Listeners, thank you very much. That is episode number 60. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Annie Gascoigne, who's an organisational psychologist and a visiting lecturer at Goldsmiths University of London. Annie, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me, Richard.
0: Um, I'm really happy that you're able to make the time for a chat for the podcast because you, um, well, you're really interested in a lot of the topics that I'm interested in. But it's not a perfect overlap, which I think is great. And there's some things that you're particularly knowledgeable about that I'd like to introduce to the to the podcast listeners. But before we get into the psychology of it all, I wonder: could you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your career to date? why occupational psychology?
2: Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, Interestingly, I think I kind of stumbled upon occupational psychology kind of by accident. Um, I I started off my career working as a management consultant. I didn't do an undergrad in psychology. Um, My undergrad was in international management. Um, And uh, so I spent... years as a consultant and then working uh, internally uh, at a big international bank but generally that first sort of 10 years of my career working in great big multinational organizations helping them with process and systems change Hmm. and after doing that for 10 years I I then sort of decided to take a totally different direction and work with startups so I'd been working with these organizations sort of 400,000 employees globally, kind of numbers, and then was in an organization where there were just two of us. And then, um, and I worked with a, a number of different startups over uh, a few years. And what I kind of noticed is that I really thought startups are supposed to be all kind of innovative and creative, and surely the behaviors in startups are going to be marvelous. But actually, kind of recognizing that whether in huge, great organizations or the tiniest of organizations, despite our best intentions, often uh, the organizations weren't as effective as they wanted to be. And neither were the people within them uh, either effective or really looking after their well being. And I found that fascinating. And I started reading and going to talks to try and find out more about. what I could do to make a difference and I I, I kind of figured out that maybe psychologists might know something about (laughs)
0: behavior. (laughs) Maybe.
2: Um, Yeah maybe Um, and then I came across uh, organizational psychology that there was a master's in it uh, that I could do um, which was uh, thrilling for me to discover and so I went to Goldsmiths to do uh, a master's and I just thought it was a an indulgent year, as I like to describe it, um, to find out how to look at uh, organisations through a behavioural lens. And I, I got sucked in, Richard. <laughs>
0: <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> in the nicest possible way. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Um, so I just spent the last four years uh, working on a PhD at Goldsmiths, um, looking at, uh, 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 at this idea of organisational flexibility as a way of helping organizations be more effective and also uh, able to support the effectiveness and well-being of the people within them.
0: So listeners to this podcast if they've been listening for a little while uh, will be hopefully familiar with the concept of psychological flexibility where we've been talking about how people relate to their inner experiences, their thoughts and their emotions and how they can apply their values to help them make good decisions and take helpful action and we've used this framework quite a few times to help explain phenomena and experiences in our world of work. If that's individual psychological flexibility, can you explain what organisational flexibility is?
2: Yeah, the, the the great thing for me is just how uh, these models are, uh, of flexibility are related. So I came across psychological flexibility first and was like, oh, this seems to explain so much it's uh, a a great way of looking at at, as individuals and so uh, Frank Bond at Goldsmiths had uh, developed this model of organizational flexibility that is essentially scaling up psychological flexibility so kind of describe it as uh, an organization's ability to notice its internal and its external environment and, and notice uh, and take opportunities for pursuing its purpose, so kind of like the the individual's values for pursuing the organization's purpose even in the face of the internal and external challenges
0: and what would that noticing look like for an organization
2: yeah, so it, it can be uh, in terms of uh, monitoring um, and and that's going to be so different in different organisations. Mm. It depends what what the organisation is doing. That it's it's very, it's going to be contextual. Um, but a, a big part of it needs a certain openness to dis- to to recognizing discomfort. So I think uh, actually um, for organisations in the same way as for individuals, our willingness to to um, sit with uh, uncomfortable feelings. So, if I if I think about it, in an organisation as a leader, I I might often want to have a certain amount of control over my team, and that that uh, that I want them to know exactly how I would do things. Uh, this this is the exact path that I would want to take. But I think we start to recognise that level of control isn't always helpful. That kind of micromanagement, but Still, as that leader, I might feel really uncomfortable about letting my team explore different ways of reaching the goals according to what they think works for them. And the the, the discomfort of uh, uh, of that can be really challenging in an organisation. As a leader, I might need to report to my managers, my leaders about what's happening. And if I don't know exactly how everybody's going about that, that can be quite uncomfortable. And yet, if we can sit with that discomfort, we can possibly find more interesting ways uh, uh, of getting to our goals, more helpful ways uh, of, of getting to, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, reaching what we're trying to achieve as an organisation that there isn't just one right way of doing it the way that I would do it.
0: Mm, that that picture you paint of a sort of a controlling leader who just, you know really feels that they need to know everything that's going on that that does paint a, a familiar picture um and you you can instantly see the limitations of that style and, and the impact it could have on other people you could also see a more psychologically flexible leader who can sit with that ambiguity and that discomfort and can give people the latitude does that mean then that uh, the organizational flexibility is a function of individual psychological flexibility. Does it scale up that way?
2: Um, I do think that they're closely related um, I, I think uh, though the the culture of the organization so having an organization that is designed to be flexible helps to reinforce psychological flexibility so it works that way around as well as helping people to be psychologically flexible will help the organisation be more flexible. So it's that two-way process that I think is really a, a fascinating piece here. But we we almost need the, the reinforcement at that organisational level around that openness for discomfort uh, that, that really allows people to feel like if they recognise that there's a problem that they can speak up about it, that they're not going to be uh shut down. I think, you know, it, it can be quite often the case in organizations that we don't want to hear the bad news. Um, and so people might not highlight a, a problem. They might think, well, if I highlight this, I'm the one who's going to have to deal with it. Mm. Uh, I might be I might be told off about it, all those kinds of things that can stop us speaking out about a problem. Whereas if we can be a more open that, that uh, ability to monitor, to notice what's going on, um, we can uh, get to solving the problems uh, quicker and, and finding opportunities for, uh, for, for actually doing what matters.
0: So if I've understood you correctly, in an organisation we could support great things by giving individuals the skills they need to be more psychologically flexible, but also nurture a culture around them that allows the organization to be flexible and it's probably a good idea to to look at both of those things concurrently
2: yeah yes absolutely and when when i go into organizations with this i would typically want to focus on psychological flexibility first and trying to help people be uh, more open to noticing what's going on for them and what they care about uh what matters to them within their organization um uh, as a as a starting point to going into then looking at how that model scales up to the organizational level uh creating that bit more willingness to, uh, to um, tolerate deal with accept those kinds of uh discomforts that 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 will arise with challenges that are going to happen in the workplace mm. um and
0: so sorry, go ahead.
2: Um, and I was going to say that I, I think that connection with understanding what matters to us as individuals within the workplace is quite important as well. So while pursuing what matters for the organisation, trying to connect with that gives us a great it uh, can give us a greater sense of meaning and purpose about why we're even here in this organisation, what why why we should show up to work here. But actually, within that, we are all looking for something for ourselves. So. For me, if I'm working in an organisation, there might be stuff around my own self-development that I I particularly want to explore within the context of helping an organisation to do what it is trying to achieve. And I think recognising those two things is uh, a really healthy way for organisations to be because everybody is going to be showing up to work with their own reasons for being there. Mm. And that that kind of diversity is so wonderful. It can bring such a richness in seeing different opportunities for pursuing the organization's purpose if we can recognize that in ourselves.
0: The the big questions for individuals, particularly at at more junior levels. To answer, aren't they? You know, what, what are we here for? Why does this organisation exist? Uh, and especially, you know, when I've had conversations like this you know, around purpose and meaning in the in in the workplace, um, it's kind of hard for people to answer that question beyond maybe the strapline that that goes beneath the logo, or well, we're here to sell product X, aren't we? You know, and making that connection, if that's difficult, it, it can then mean it's more difficult for you to connect with why you're here in the first place and why you put your effort in and why you get out of bed in the morning
2: Uh, i i really agree with that i you know even organizations that have such clear purpose clear clear missions a a charity or something that's got real behind it you know if you've got somebody who's working in finance or uh, something that in in that organization they can Sometimes feel quite disconnected from that day to day piece that's at the front line of helping that charity uh, achieving what it's trying to do
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I, I think I think that can be really really tough um, but the organization can try and help I, I think even in the the meetings bet- that a person has with their manager trying to bring what that individual so what what do I want to achieve in achieving this team's goals so even connecting what, what's the team trying to do here, and how can uh, I as an individual bring myself uh, and what I t- want to do and gain and uh, uh, what would I value how can I, can I how can I bring that into achieving these team's goals and Connecting those teams' goals up, so it, it kind of creates a bit of a ladder that mm. my values relate to the team's values in this way. The team's values and goals relate to the organization or you know, department and so on up the ladder. That it, it, it can start to create uh, a, a clearer connection.
0: And it makes it easier, therefore, to answer that question, well, does that matter? You know, when something mm. does happen, well, I know what we're here to do. I know what our goals are. So does this matter? And if it matters, then we can focus on it. But if it doesn't matter, should we be getting upset about it?
2: Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And I think often instead we go towards the familiar, The, the this, is what, this is how we do things here. This is how we've always done it. Uh, this, is, this is the path to go down uh here's the job spec this is how the previous incumbent did this job and we we get into these uh into a groove into the just a, a kind of safe space because it feels it feels reliable if we we keep doing it this way surely we'll have the same outcomes
0: And hmm. um, sense checking against the familiar rather than what might be
2: yeah yeah and and sometimes that you know that can really work in the short term uh uh, and and that makes it. I mean, it makes perfect sense. If this is this particular process has been working for ages, perhaps it will still work right now. But actually, I think we forget to, uh, you know, put our heads above the parapet and say, actually, what are we trying to achieve? And does this process, does this task, still work in the same way for achieving that? Or have there been changes in the environment, including me taking on this role? Is there a different way of looking at this that could make this uh, an, an awful lot easier? Could what What is it that works in this situation, what helps to achieve what we're actually trying to achieve now?
0: And not wanting to sound cliché, but you, you could look at events, therefore, as either threats or opportunities, depending yeah. on the perspective you take.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely that. I think that's a, yeah, you're right. It's a cliche, but
0: um, yeah. I've got plenty of those. So let's turn, if we can, to to your PhD. Um, You know, you no doubt put an awful lot of your time, um, blood, sweat and tears into that. What, What was the core focus of what you were looking at?
2: So the title of the PhD is The Development and Validation of a Measure of Organisational Flexibility. Um, uh, And a measure doesn't make it sound particularly glamorous, though I'm not sure that there are many PhD titles that sound particularly
0: glamorous. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: But really what it was about was uh, that if we care about having evidence for our theories, for our theoretical models. We need to be able to show that something's changing. We need to be able to support that theory. Um, And to be able to do that, we need to be able to measure it. Um, So as I mentioned before, uh, Frank Bond had developed this uh, theoretical model uh, of organisational flexibility based on so much of the psychological flexibility work and uh, organisational behaviour that we, we know about. Uh, There's already a lot of evidence. We've pulled together this model, Um, and uh, essentially, the model proposes that if we can uh, enhance an organisation's flexibility, um, we can improve its uh, the organisation's effectiveness and well-being, and that of the people within it. So, we need to be to, to be able to show that that model really works. We need to measure, be able to measure an organisation beforehand. We need to do training or whatever to try and make the change happen. And then we need to be able to measure afterwards. And first, that means needing a measure. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and having become a scientist <laughs> in the last five years, I've, I've really realised the importance of our measures um, and that they need to be rigorous measures we can't just go into an organization and ask people is your organization flexible uh because it's so highly subjective and people are going to interpret that differently they're going to have different understanding about what flexibility means Uh, and so there's so much work that was needed to go into showing the validity and reliability of the measure um, and what I mean by that is, so the validity does does it measure what it's supposed to measure? So, uh, like if we have a ruler for measuring length, does it measure? Does it does it measure length? If we've got a set of scale, does it actually measure weight? Um, and the reliability is around the, the consistency. Um, so we would want a ruler to work consistently that uh, it's measuring centimeters um, or whatever, uh, and that the scale is. Measuring weight, although perhaps actually on a normal day-to-day basis, I'd rather it didn't measure that uh, reliably at all for me. <laughs> um, but so essentially, a lot of the work was uh, so the the, the, center, the core piece of the work was around uh, developing this measure, which meant going out to I uh, had uh, thirty-one organisations as part of my research, and and the end of around seven hundred employees involved uh, in the research to To um, to help me make sure that my measure was doing what it should.
0: And what were the most uh, interesting or most exciting results from from this piece of work?
2: I think uh, I like the two big headlines for me is that um, organisational flexibility using my measure turns out to be a strong predictor of organisational performance and collective job satisfaction. Uh, And that it's able that that this measure is able to do so over and above organisational learning. And organisational learning is is something that has been quite prominent in organisational literature for a number of years. It's often used in consultancy, um, and it's uh, it's it's, in a way its definition is quite a similar concept to organisational flexibility. It's about increasing and using knowledge mm. to support adaptation and um, towards uh, um, achieving uh, an organization's goals but there's been quite a challenge in the world of organizational learning about how to really uh, improve it how to enhance an organization's learning um, how uh, how can we how can we change that how can we up the knowledge sharing and uh, increasing it um, and so where that's been quite difficult, and yet it has been a great predictor of performance and, uh, and job satisfaction. With organisational flexibility, we have some kind of core ways into to, to being able to enhance it. And, we, and it turns out that it's a, a better predictor. So I think that's been particularly exciting. Mm. And then at, the, at that organisational level, and then the other pieces at the individual level, Um, where individual perceptions of organisational flexibility predict general mental health, work motivation and job satisfaction, even over and above uh, psychological flexibility. So, you know, we talk about how important psychological flexibility is, and yet this really highlights how the work environment around even a a psychologically flexible person is so important. Um, And this this individual perceptions piece means that if I think my organisation is flexible, even if my colleagues don't particularly, if I think it is, my general mental health, and my work motivation, and my job satisfaction are likely to be higher. So I I find those really just such fascinating result coming out of the
0: research that is really interesting especially the fact that the at the organizational level it predicts outcomes that organizations are pretty much consistently in search of effectiveness and satisfaction um Mm -hmm. and yet approaches to these are varied and many and inconsistent and often um you know maybe cause more problems than they solve so so it sounds like i'm imagining someone you know driving through town, listening to this podcast and going, oh, hold on, maybe I need a bit of this for my organisation. What is it that you wish the leaders and organisations knew about this concept of organisational flexibility?
2: Mm. Yeah, great question. Um, I I think, firstly, um, I think we all probably get it, that organisations need to be able to adapt uh, in order to survive over the long term, you know when there are changes going on in the environment constantly, but our view of organizational flexibility isn 't about needing to be constantly changing, and I do think that there 's a bit of a an idea out there about kind of continuous improvement, continuous change. Um, designing organisations as a whole to be agile and constantly moving, um, I I, I don't think is necessary and it's not how we see organisational flexibility. For me, it's about the context. So we know that the environment constantly changes, but that doesn't mean the organisation and its people have to. The flexibility piece comes from noticing what's going on in the environment and being flexible with seeing which those give us opportunities in this situation for doing what matters
0: so potentially avoiding this feeling of constant change that that many people are just fatigued by in organizations with another reorganization another change another rebranding that that these are responses to things that are happening in the environment that maybe some of them don't need to happen at all
2: yeah, I really think so. I think quite often organizations get into following trends or fads, it's almost like there's a, mm-hmm. a FOMO, like, oh, en- engagement surveys, we need to have one of those, or, or whatever it, is, it might be in that moment in that organization. Um, and, and so rather than connecting with this organization's context right now and this organization's purpose as it is today, and what we can do uh, it, based on that. You know, I, uh, in my own experience um, as a consultant, we spent many years working uh, uh, with implementing HR IT systems in, in these huge organisations, and there was this massive rush to outsource and uh, um, offshore uh, uh, employee services. So a whole swathe of People were being moved to um, Hungary or Czech Republic uh, to to become offshore services over there, and then you see a few years later it all coming back again. Or it was the the before then there was kind of um, all the call centers moving to India, and then Mm. we've seen a lot of that coming back. And 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 maybe it is the 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 change back is when we tried something it didn't work. But I just think so much of it was the fad of oh well, everybody else is doing it. This is what we ought to be doing too. Uh, Rather than for this organisation, this is what will work for us in doing what we care about.
0: And that's really interesting because if you think about very senior organisational decision makers, it would require an element of psychological flexibility among them to not jump on the bandwagon and to be (laughs) secure enough to say, no, I'm, I'm confident that we're doing the right thing for us here. We don't need to join in with that.
2: Yeah, I, I think we can get a bit lost with what what is the what is the question? What is the thing that we're trying to do? What is what is it we're trying to achieve for our purpose? And we we uh, we follow what we think is an overarching. Uh, uh, this is the way forward because everybody else is doing it. Um,
0: Uh, Those Uh, messages are very compelling, you know, (laughs) and it's uh, very easy as human beings to get caught up with that stuff. Um, I suppose the difference is between you and I, you know, making a purchasing decision in a shop versus a multinational organization going through a reorganization. Um, We both both might fall for some marketing, but the impact of the latter is so much greater than us choosing between, I don't know, chocolate bars.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a great analogy. But, you know, sometimes it's bigger than a chocolate bar, though, right? Sometimes we can be persuaded to really start with some money that uh, isn't actually helping us uh, with connecting with what's important to us. And um, we realise after a while, actually, I'm not sure that that helped me at all. Uh, It's now I'm now on to the next thing. I've got to buy the bigger car, the bigger house or whatever it might Mm. be. Um, And I, I think that we can chase similar kind of dreams in organisations.
0: It's the, um, what I'm thinking of, it's the, the, the language of we should um, mm. rather than we will or this is necessary or we've reflected on it's like the, the will we should. And there's no more exploration of the reasoning except yes, yes, we should. <laughs> that sounds good. Let's do mm. that. Another initiative, another product, another whatever, whatever it is. And so, you know, the, the complexity of organizations means that there are many, many, many opportunities uh, on a daily basis for organizations to benefit from organizational flexibility many of the <laughs> interpersonal challenges the setbacks the planning errors however you want to look at it there's lots of opportunities for it for it out there so what would you say are the organizational um events uh characteristics that prevent the organization from being more flexible mm.
2: yeah i think Kind of what I touched on earlier, you know, we're, we're kind of wired for safety, wanting to seek out the familiar, the easy, those reliable processes. And there's a lovely term that I came across during my research, that unconsciously colluding. Uh, so as organisations, we want that kind of level of control. So we bring in these standardised processes uh, that make us feel like we've got this sense of control. Uh, and, and it, it works so well in the short term so often. Um, the example I like to play with around this is, you know, sometimes we, um, we might set up like a, a call centre or something where we want there to be this great customer service and so we make sure that it, everybody on the team in this call centre is going to respond in exactly the same way. Here's the script. Uh, because this is the script that is going to give the level of quality service that we want our customers to have. And in the short term, that can feel great because everybody is clear uh, about the con- what's happening. It's consistent. Uh, the managers know what they're reporting about. The people on the team know what they're supposed to say. So everybody, in theory at least, feels comfortable and safe with this situation. but. The customer might have a slightly uh, weird inquiry or whatever, and the the script doesn't quite match, and the, there's something off between the support and what the customer actually wants. And so, from the customer's perspective, maybe this doesn't feel like quality service. And so, if the the, the call center's goal was around quality service, and the customer's not feeling it, then actually that's not that's not achieving the goals and setting the process to be like this means that people on the team aren't necessarily noticing that there might be other ways of responding. So I kind of use that example uh, as, as ways that we, with the best of intentions, want to have these things in place to make things comfortable and easy and smooth. But those short-term efficiencies, those short-term, uh, I the uh, uh, short-term processes for to give us a sense of reliability, aren't always helpful over the longer term for achieving what matters. And yet, it is such a natural thing for us to want to do to have to have that safety. Mm.
0: I'm thinking immediately now, listening to that example, but having read before about the motivational impact of giving people more discretion as to how they do their job, (laughs) giving them latitude um, into how they organise themselves, that that flies in the face of that, really, doesn't it? So the control is safe and organised, but the control can take away the flexibility that could really make it a more effective organisation. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I I, I think. Ideas around job crafting and things like that, are, uh, where, where people do have a certain amount of latitude in their jobs, can really be a helpful way uh, of pursuing organisational flexibility. And, and again, it's got to be contextual. Um, so in some organisations, that's more or less possible in certain situations. But I, I think helping people to bring themselves to their work situations so that they can see opportunities in that moment for doing things that work for the goals, the aims, the intentions um, is not only healthy for the person in that moment that they're able to bring them help, their whole self there, but it also helps the organization with the kind of the diversity of ideas.
0: And that prompts me to think about customer service. You know, when you know you've had someone really help you And you can tell they're thinking on their feet and they're coming up with solutions and they're, you know, drawing on their experience. And that's a really welcome experience as opposed to an instant no, because it doesn't fit with the existing process, which of course is predictable and is efficient and, you know, makes all kinds of sense in one sense, but it doesn't lead to the customer service that you'd hope to give me in the first place.
2: Absolutely that. Yeah, exactly.
0: Computer yeah, yeah. says no.
2: <laughs> oh, it does too often, failure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference I, I won't use teaching. <laughs> the, the references are aging by the year, and fewer and fewer students get them. So I, I'd like to, um, you know, close by spending a little bit of time um, learning more about the work that you do with organizations. Now, could you describe for us a, a typical? projects um what would people see when you come into their organization to increase this organizational flexibility
2: yeah um so i i think there's stuff at two levels really i um i think there's a, an important piece that uh, typically involves working with the leadership to help guide them and uh in the ideas of what uh, helps an organization to be flexible um, and that can take various forms. You know, it can be with kind of workshopping stuff with them. Uh, but also often people really appreciate coaching around, uh, around those concepts, that, that openness to discomfort that I was talking about earlier and mm. um, ha- helping leaders to be reinforcing of that uh, uh, and role modelling it themselves. Uh, I think it, it, they, they really benefit from the, the coaching side of that. Um, But I also feel that it's important to spread the ideas of uh, psychological and organisational flexibility throughout the organisation. So uh, I typically run workshops uh, uh, throughout an organisation and I would start with psychological or flexibility, helping people to um, first engage with building skills about being more comfortable with their own discomfort with novelty and complexity, uncertainty, ambiguity, all of that stuff, um, and helping them to connect more clearly with uh, finding out what matters to them. So we, we know already that uh, those kind of uh, uh, interventions, those kind of training sessions, workshops uh, can be really helpful for people. Um, but then uh, building on top of that, workshopping um, with them uh, about organizational flexibility, and so how they 're connecting their personal uh, values within that organizational piece, connecting with what matters as an organization um, and I often find that there 's these two pieces with organizations some that uh, some organizations are really super connected with what matters, what their purpose is, but they find themselves kind of stuck in a a bit of a ridge that they're not really noticing those opportunities for seeing different ways of doing things and then there are other organizations where actually they maybe have a mission statement up on their website but it doesn't really carry weight and meaning it's it's just words uh, and that um connecting with that uh, with what they what they why this organization really exists can be quite a powerful exercise in helping bring together why we're here, why we want to get up in the morning and work together. Um, And and I think it can really kind of uh, reinvigorate organisations to really get behind uh, a purpose. So kind of um, helping to do that throughout the organisation and not just have it as a leadership exercise, Mm. uh, I I also find really, really helpful to bring that connection
0: so there's an element um, there of of skills acquisition, there's an element of clarifying purpose and, and culture, there's, there's an element of helping senior leaders get some more of that clarity and acquire more of those skills and potentially coach them to be more accepting of discomfort and to keep working through it and not avoid it. So potentially people could come out of this kind of a, a process with quite a different perspective on what it means to go to work there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it can really create some uh fascinating shifts in, in perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Super. Um I'm gonna share with listeners in the show notes um uh ways that they can find out more about you online and your work. So we'll link to that and I'm sure you'd be delighted to to hear from anyone um with their questions. Um I'd like to finish by saying thank you so much for making the time to uh come on and, and talk about your work. I'm I'm really interested in it. Uh I'm sure we'll have the chance to talk again. And uh of course, if if you're listening to this and um you have questions for 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 either of us about this topic or how it relates to other topics that we we've covered, uh don't hes- hesitate to get in touch. You can do that um on Twitter at my pocket psych or send us a much longer message via the contact form and that's at worklifepsych.com slash contact. Annie, thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much. Always a pleasure chatting with you, Richard.
0: Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at Work Life Psych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.